just by way of review for the disciplines a little bit. Your disciplines are exactly that. They're disciplines. Um, I don't know about you, but I never find myself two hours into my day sitting there still reading my Bible and in a prayerful interaction with God's word and God and then ask myself, wow, how did that happen? How did I get here? I didn't even know that happened. Um, it just doesn't work that way. I have to discipline myself to go to bed the night before. And then I have to discipline myself that when the alarm goes off, I don't keep hitting snooze. And then I have to discipline myself to still actually sit down, even though I may not feel like it, and open my Bible and read it. Um, it takes discipline to do that. It doesn't just happen on its own. The only ones who do not have to discipline themselves to draw near to God are those who are in heaven. And they're doing it well, and they do it perfectly, and they don't have to have any residual sin drawing them away. But that's not us yet. Now, you're not who you used to be, where you didn't ever want to know anything about God. You just wanted to your own way. You're not that person either. You're you're a mixed creature in between, and you're in, in this mixed condition. You are in need to discipline yourself to come near to the Word of God, to know the God of the Word, right? And then you can step into your home, or your family can come home, or roommates come in, or whatever, and um, you actually have to discipline yourself to be godly there, too. Um, it doesn't just happen. You have to think carefully about, um, okay, how can I impact the others in my household so that they are thinking in a Godward direction? Um, how can I bring what the Word of God has impressed upon me to bear on them? Uh, that doesn't just happen. You have to discipline yourself. And then, of course, as you step out from your home and into ministry here at church with each other or at work, your ministry um, there in terms of just being a Christian in the world or at school or wherever, that takes work too. It takes discipline. None of these things just happen. Um, and what we want to do in Wellspring for the women and build for the guys is we want to just put that out on the table clearly. That being a Christian um, doesn't mean that you are disciplining yourself like you should. We actually have to remind each other to be more disciplined in our pursuit of the Lord, our pursuit of our families, our households, pursuit of one another in ministry. And so um, we're all in this together. Uh, we, we sometimes in our lives do it better than at other times, and, uh, but we get to do it together. And so what I'm going to talk to you about today, as you can see, is um, honoring the Lord um, and controlling ourselves in our Bible reading. Um, the fancy name for this is hermeneutics. It's how do you interpret the Bible. Um, but what I want you to know today is that this takes as much discipline. When you come to the Bible and are going to interpret it as you're reading it or as you're studying it, this takes as much discipline as anything else. You have to control yourself. Um, and that might be surprising for you to consider, but it involves self-control. Because when, when I read God's word and I c come across a passage or a, a phrase or something, I can find myself going, wait a minute, I remember I read that someplace. Where was that? And I'm up from my chair, I'm over on my bookshelf, I'm looking through something, or I'm turning back to another page in the Bible, I've left where I'm reading, and I'm now on this rabbit trail and I'm just going. 
Um, it takes self-control to say, no, I'm going to stay right here and I'm going to stay connected to these words right here. The, the imagery in my mind is a very short choke collar. And I think, put it about that long away. Because I, I can't pull up and away from it, and I'm just forced to look at one thing. You need that kind of discipline. Nobody's going to do that for you. You have to do that with you. Um, think about if this happened with your own words. This is a silly example, but... Um, Imagine that you wrote a love letter to a family member or a spouse, your spouse or a boyfriend, girlfriend. Wait, you wouldn't have girlfriend. This is women. Boyfriend. Um, imagine writing a love letter and um, you gave it to somebody and they were holding it and they were reading it and they started with your words. But then they were reminded of their favorite romantic comedy. And then they like, oh, I, this, this reminds me of the way that in that movie. And it's just so cute. And I just love the way that they just interact together. And, and they're often talking about that. And they're representing your love for the one that you had written these words for in a way that is like, that's not what I meant at all. It would be appropriate for you, as they're holding your words, to say, could you please control yourself with my words? That's a silly example, but, but you can understand that, that, that what I'm trying to get you to, to see is that there are things that you expect people to do with your words that we also need to give God the same courtesy. If people need to control themselves with your words, then we need to control ourselves with God's words and not run away to some other ideas um, about what it means. So it requires self-control. And we just need to extend to God the same courtesy. Um, and, and even more so, I mean, these are, the, these are the king's words, right? So I, I want you today to feel two things, sometimes at the same time. One, I want you to, to know that this is easier than you think. And here's why. Because the words here um, are language. It's the way language works, and you use language every day, and it's intuitive to you. There is so much about language that you assume and you know, you just might need to be reminded that, oh yeah, I need to do that here too. And it's easier than you think. Okay, it's easier than you think. But at the same time, like I said, these are the, these are the king's words. And so I want you to feel on the other side, it's, it's more serious than you think. And you cannot lose either one of those. You cannot let one of them completely overshadow the other so that you forget about it. You can't look at this and be so sobered by this, the king's words, that I, I just, I can't, I can't do it. That's wrong. Because God spoke to reveal himself. And it can't be so, oh, this is a piece of cake. I know what's going on here. Yeah, this, I, yeah, I read that. I know what that means. You, you don't want to be there either and miss the sobriety of it. Right? So you, today you're going to feel that tension back and forth from one point to the next. And I'm going to try to, whenever I can, draw this back to, okay, let's just think about the way language works. When you communicate, what do you, what do, you do? When you listen to somebody communicate, what do you do? Well, just do that here. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, it's easier than I think. And then you'll be like, but it's the king and I don't want to dishonor his words. It's more serious than I think. Okay? All right, so with that understood, let's start with number one. What should you do first um, if you're going to try to interpret or 
get meaning out of the text that before you. Number one, prayerfully position yourself under the God of the word. This is the prayer that I believe is in your notebook. Um, so I'm not going to go through it with you, but this is a sample prayer. This is not something that you need to be slavish with, but it, it, let it be like a, a launch pad for you to think about the way that you should pray and position your heart before you start reading um, the Bible. Um, this is the, what we're focusing on here is you need to be the right kind of person to interpret the Bible. You have to be the right kind of person. You can't just um, come up to the Word of God, be unaware of things, just jump right in and start going and, and start getting what you think the, the text is saying without having first tried to position yourself to be prayerful and humble and to be a worshiper, a worshiper of God in this. That will make the difference on what you do later and how you interpret meaning. So I'm just going to kind of summarize some paragraphs for you. I'm not going to read through this. But under the Heavenly Father, you want to take some time in your prayer at the beginning. And you want to just think, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to direct myself vertically. I'm just going to, in my prayer, I, I've, got my, I've got the King's Word open. I'm just, I just want to talk about you for a minute, God. I just want to talk about who you are. I just want to orient myself upward. I want to set my mind on the things above where Christ is. I want to focus upward. I want to forget who I am for just a second. I just want to be, I want to marvel at who you are. Start with something like that. That's that first paragraph. The next paragraph then, um, just that just orients you. Then, then there comes the question, why have I prayerfully come before you with my Bible open. And you need to have a good answer for that. Why am I doing this? Because my husband's going to ask me. Because I, I, every small group, they, they keep asking me. So I, I, have to, I have to do this. Listen, that is, that is low-level motivation. You don't want to... Sometimes that's maybe all there is that will keep you in it. And I would take it. If that keeps you in the Bible, I would take it. But you must have... You must aspire for something much, much higher than that. So here are four possible answers. First one, I have your word open before me because um, I want to know you. This is the heart of discipline one, right? Um, you're, you're, you're trying to express something of your desire to not just win a theological argument by your reading, not just checking off a box, not just preparing for your NGM lesson, but you're here because of God. You want to know him. You need to express something like that. The second paragraph is, um, expressing your ongoing need um, to know how dangerous sin is in you. Listen, there is something within you that um, would, if it was possible, if it could, it would keep you from God forever. And it's still in you. Uh, and you need to come to the word of God in a way that's like, I, I could be exposed here to some more danger of what my sin is, and I need to be open to that. If you're coming to the Bible and all you want is just the rosy picture of life and just how wonderful you are now, you're going to be, um, you're going to, you're going to miss out on a lot of what the Bible's there for. Um, so you need to be able to have an awareness of that third paragraph there, or the third answer. Express something of then your need for the gospel, just as you're, as you're looking at God's word, as you're reading it in the middle, and you come across something that just is like a dagger, think, Jesus Christ was crucified for my forgiveness of sin. God, thank you so much um, for, for sacrificing your son in my place, that I might have my sins forgiven, that I would know you and, and be gospel-oriented at that moment. Um, be prayerful about that. The fourth answer 
express something of your desire to live a righteous life, a holy life. Um, this, you still need to grow. You still need to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Express something of that. And these are four possible answers uh, of why am I here? Why am I here? Well, I want to know God. Um, I want to be aware of how dangerous my sin is. I need to remind myself of the, the, the power of the gospel in my life. And I want to live a life that's pleasing to him. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Um, the last paragraph express something of how you know that when I close my Bible and I'm all done and I have to go get in the car or I have to go step into my family, oh yeah, I need to bring what just happened to me and what I have, how I've been shaped by that, I need to bring that into my day. You don't graduate from this and forget about it. Now that's what I do far too often. And you're probably like me in some ways like that. You know how challenging it is that you can be so encouraged by what you read and the next thing you know in the car on the way you're sinning boldly against the guy that cut you off. And you're like, how did that happen? I just spent time in with the Lord. Um, well, it's not a formula, a, a little magic incantation thing that you do that all of a sudden you don't sin anymore the rest of the day. I have to bring this and I have to bring it to mind throughout my day as I step into the day. Express something of that, that you want this to be more than just a moment, but you want it to be something that's going to sustain you throughout the day, okay? So in praying something like this, what you're doing is you're beginning to discipline yourself. I want to be the right kind of person when my Bible is open. I want to be this kind of person. Because how you interpret it then will be influenced by that. It just will, okay? So number one, just, just prayerfully position yourself before God's word so that you are a humble, prayerful worshiper. Uh, number two, when you're reading your Bible, expect a single coherent meaning. One understandable meaning when you approach the Bible. When was the last time that you communicated um, by email or in a text or in a Facebook post and you communicated so as to not be understood? I'm going to write these words and I want nobody to understand that thing I say. We just don't do that. Language is there to take something that's inside that nobody knows, put it into words, and we put it out, and we, and we know how to put those words together in a way that people can understand. Now, we're flawed communicators, but we always communicate with the intent to be understood, even when we're trying to deceive. We're communicating so as to be understood a certain way so that they won't really know what's going on. So we're flawed, and we can use communication in some really twisted ways, but we always communicate to be understood. When was the last time you communicated and you were not eager for your spouse or your children or your roommate to not understand you? You expect to be understood. And that, that, so in other words, language is coherent. We communicate to be a coherent, okay? But also single meaning. When was the last time, imagine a mom uh, talking to... Um, child who's been difficult all day and the husband who just came in one set of words when was the last time you communicated with one sentence two different meanings you want the child to understand it the one way and you want your husband to understand it a different way language doesn't work that way now there are two different hearers who may respond to it differently 
But you never communicate two meanings from the same set of words. You never communicate in such a way where you want from the same set of words one interpretation, one meaning of it, and a completely valid, different meaning that could be concluded. Now, you never communicate that way. Language just doesn't work that way. In one sentence, it has one meaning. You got different readers. You got different hearers. What goes on in their mind is not what you're intending to do. Okay? So, if that's not the case for you, that there aren't several different meanings from the same set of words, then let's just extend to God the same courtesy. Okay? Let's, let's take uh, our Bibles and let's open them up to Isaiah 45, verse 18 and 19. Let me just help you with some basic things to understand about God communicating clearly. Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. I'm going to, when I have you turn someplace, I'm going to probably start reading before you get there because we have a lot to try to get through today and I'll just let you catch up. Isaiah 45, verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no one else. I have not spoken in secret, in some dark land. Some people approach God's word like that's what it is. It's in secret, and it's in some dark land, and I'm looking at it, but I can't see it can't get it but god says i have not spoken in secret i i did not speak in some dark land where you can't find my words i spoke clearly i did not say to the offspring of jacob seek me in a waste place i the lord speak righteousness declaring things that are upright listen the bible is not a spy's communication intended to hide the real meaning even though you're looking at words and codes that you have to get a decoder ring out of the box of Lucky Charms to be able to figure out what it is that's being said. It's not a a spy manual or a spy communication. Let's go to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Very important verse for Israel back in the day. Teaches us still much today, much that we can get from this. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Listen to this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, But the things revealed belong to us, Moses says, and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. God has not communicated everything that he knows or that he has planned to do for man. Do you know that? Your Bible is not everything that God knows. Um, There are still some things that belong to him that you do not know and that you cannot know and that you will not know as the creature. But there are revealed things that belong to the ones that he gives his revelation to. In other words, God expects that man understand which things. The secret things in his head, in God's mind, or the things that he's revealed. He says they belong to you, Israel. They belong to you. And God doesn't hold Israel accountable to understand what is still secret to him. But he does hold them accountable to what he has revealed. And notice the extent to which God expects understanding. In other words, this is how clear it is. Look at verse 29. The things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. To what end? They're so clear that you can what? Obey him. When you want somebody to obey you, to fulfill your will that you have, you speak 
very clearly. You reveal it so that they get it. Okay? So we can get it. Um, that doesn't mean, however, that everything is easy to understand. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember this? Uh, these are the words of, of um, Peter about Paul. 2 Peter 3, I'll back up to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as, under, as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. And so Peter is acknowledging that the people that he's writing to, they've had Paul's letters too. Now watch this. Also in all of his letters, speaking in them the things in which are some things hard to understand. Okay, Peter is telling people, hey, Paul's difficult sometimes to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they also do the rest of the scripture. So what did Peter just do with Paul's words? Put them on the same level as what? The rest of the scripture. So to say that, yeah, they distort Paul's words as they do the rest of the scriptures. What is he saying about Paul's words? They're scripture. Does Peter know that Paul is writing scripture? Yes, he does. So if Peter knows that Paul is writing scripture, does Paul know that Paul is writing scripture? Yes. And one of these days we'll take you through some passages in the New Testament and show you how you can see that. But that's a rabbit trail for now. So I just teased you with something that we're not even going to talk about. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Don't you love it when that happens? So it may take some work. You might have to be careful, but you can understand what God has revealed. So we read and we study God's word, expecting to find one coherent message after another. One after another, after another, after another, after another, from sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph, even though it might take me some study, it might take me some patience and some careful thought. And so again, we expect to discover one meaning in each text, not several. Okay, because that's what we do when we communicate. We understand how language works. Listen, it's easier than you think. This is how language works. You don't talk to your child and let him decide any one of three possible meanings in his mind. You communicated with how many meanings? One. And he, he doesn't get to decide which one it is. You tell him what it is. Your words are clear. The context makes it clear. There's one meaning. Okay. And we expect the same from God's word. There are not two different legitimate interpretations of your words. And neither are there two legitimate different interpretations of God's words. A lot of times you'll hear people say, um, I've even said this at times in the past. Well, and this is a difficult passage and there's good men on both sides. And kind of just leave it there like there's in the people's mind. There's two possible meanings in this text. And I'm telling you that either here's your options. One of them is wrong. And one of them is right, or both of them are wrong, and neither one of them are right yet. There just aren't, and, and we can be humble about that. You can disagree. If there's good men who disagree about what a text is saying, the problem is not with the text. The problem is with flawed readers, flawed communicators ourselves, trying to understand what the problem is. But God has spoken one meaning, and your job is to go after that one meaning. It's easier than you think. You're not trying to figure out with a decoder ring which of the seven possible meanings this is. There's only one meaning because you don't communicate with multiple meanings and neither does God. Okay? 
Number two, and by the way, that takes self-control. It just does. Okay, discipline yourself to expect a single coherent meaning. Number three, when you read, hold fast to the normal use of words and language. Just hold on tight to the way language normally works. It's normal. This is not some weird spy manual communication thing that's written in a really twisted kind of way, and I just don't know if I can get it. No, hold on to the normal use of language, how it normally works. So we read and we study the Bible following the practices that we consider normal. Um, When a husband comes home from work and he finds a note on the counter letting him know the light in the hallway is out, he doesn't read the note in a way that concludes that spiritual darkness is welling up in the house. (laughs) I had no idea. What happened while I was gone? Right? It's, it's ridiculous to think that way. Why? Well, rather he just reads the, the, the words normally, interprets it normally, and he gets another light bulb and he puts it in the hallway light. That's the normal interpretation of the note and that, that was intended by the one who wrote it. Right? It's the normal meaning. And it's that easy with the Bible. It, there's just a normal use of words here. Okay? Uh, the, the, that practice of reading text normally has a fancy word uh, phrase. It's, it's literal, grammatical, historical. We're not even going to talk about what that means in terms of what those three words are, but you've probably heard that before, a literal, grammatical, historical method of interpreting the Bible. Here's what you need to know about that. It just means you handle language normally. That's what it means. Not metaphorically mystically, but it's just the normal use of language, okay? Normal reading or interpretation means that statements are assumed to be literal or normal unless it's evident the author was using a figure of speech. So even normal use of language allows for metaphor. It does. We do that. Jesus did it all the time. Jesus said in John chapter uh, 10 at one point, he said, I am the door. And none of us go, oh my goodness, he's made of wood and he swings on hinges. I had no idea. <laughs> we understand that the minute he says that, our minds intuitively what? I get it. I get it. He's not saying he's not human anymore or not God anymore. He, he's, I know what he's after. See, you get it. It's that easy. It's easier than you think. It's more serious than you think too. Okay? Um, but even when you get a figure of speech, even when you get a metaphor, which is a figure of speech that like um, suggests a resemblance, Jesus resembles something of, of a, like what a door is. E- even when you get a metaphor, ask yourself literally, well, what is a door? And why does, what, how does a door function? Um, and so then you take that and you bring that to bear on the resemblance that Jesus is trying to draw. So what's the resemblance? Jesus is saying, that he's something of an entrance or a gateway to eternal life. So um, it's also important to understand that the author and the context get to determine the meaning of any and all metaphors or figures of speech. The reader does not get to determine when the author is using metaphor. If you're speaking with figurative language, or let's say you're not, and your child decides that you actually are, what would you say? I wasn't being metaphorical, young man. Um, I get to decide when I'm speaking with figurative language, not you. Do you understand how that works? So let's just extend the same courtesy to God and his word. I don't get to decide when he's being metaphorical. 
Something in the context will tell me he is. It will. So it's easier than you think. You don't have to sit there and wonder, when do I impose metaphor on this? When do I bring it in? No, it'll come from it. Just like it comes from you when you speak it. Okay? It's easier than you think. Um, so discipline yourself to look for God's normal use of words and language. And in so doing, you get to honor God's word as you use um, his word. Fourthly, this is probably more for when you're studying, not just reading, um, but it involves using different kinds of reading for study of the Bible. Read the passage or the book repeatedly to make observations. Now, in this one, I'm going I'm to tell you up front, there are two, I'm going to talk about two different ways to read the Bible. Uh, and then we'll come back to it at the end um, because some of you are inclined more one way than you are the other way. And we're going to kind of just talk through that in a moment. But what you find in your list there, are, um, you'll see a big long list of um, italicized questions, right? Um, notice that these questions that you have here, they, they lie at different levels. Some of them are what I would call at a macro level. So in other words, um, they'll push you back from the text and make you see a lot at once, like a, like you're at a 30,000 foot level or a 3,000 foot level even, and you're just looking, you can see a lot at once. It, there's one kind of reading that's more at the macro level, trying to get the big picture. And then there's a micro level where you're trying to say, what is that prepositional phrase doing? What is that? What is it describing? And you're down at the micro level. You're, 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 it's almost like you can't see beyond the sentence you're looking at. You've got these blinders on where you're just focusing on. So there's micro-level reading and there's macro-level reading. Big picture and getting down into the nitty-gritty of the details, right? Um, what you want to do is you want to be able to have uh, questions that will help you zoom in and zoom out, okay? So now, you, uh, I noticed um, on your handout there that you're, you're, there's no spaces between your, your, your questions there aren't broken up into sections. So here's what I want you to do. Uh, go eight lines down. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The, the eighth question down is, what do you notice as you read and reread the entire book? Just kind of draw a line underneath that one. Those, that, those top eight questions are more like questions that are trying to put you back into the author's context, back into the author's setting. And by the way, don't you love it when you're sitting there just pouring your heart out to somebody over a coffee or whatever, a, a good friend, and they're trying to get in your shoes and know what it's like to have been what you were in? Don't you, don't you love that? Isn't that helpful? For You know when they're doing that, you know that they're comprehending the coherent single message you're trying to give them about that. It's helpful. Well, let's just do the same courtesy with God. See, it's easier than you think. You're already doing these things. We just need to do it with God's word maybe a little bit more. So you're trying, to, that first section is just trying to get you to uh, get into the shoes um, or the sandals of the original writers. Um, the next section down, look down, it, uh, it's a ways down. Look for the first how question on the left. How are all the clauses related to the others? Okay, do you see that down there? Um, it's a ways down. How are all the clauses related? That's kind of the, ne the the end of the next section. And I would say those are the questions like that there that are going to zero you in, zoom you in tight, and look at the actual words, the actual statements, how they're related to each other. Um, that's called like syntax, grammar and syntax. It's, it's how are the words put together? How are they related? Um, the next little section, five lines um, that goes down to, do you need to adjust any ideas you formed 
thus far. That's kind of moving you back out again. And you're, now you're starting to think of, okay, now why is this passage here? Because there's, when you're having a conversation with somebody, there's what they're saying. What they're saying at the moment is really important. But then have you ever been like in a conversation and you're being like, and why are you telling me that right now? Why is, what's happening? Why is this conversation taking place right now? That's an important thing to understand. Let me give an example, like even just from um, the New Testament. Um, it'll take a minute for me to kind of draw this out, but um, I think this is really helpful. When we were going through Acts years ago, um, you get to Acts chapter 10 and 11. There's been persecution in the church in Jerusalem. Peter and, and the guys who decide to say, the apostles who stayed, they're paying a very heavy price to be a Christian and remain in Jerusalem. Um, and by chapter 10 and 11, you uh, find that Peter has gone to Joppa and he's up on the roof waiting for lunch and he slips into a, a sleep and he gets a vision. And the vision has to happen not once, not twice, but three times because that's the kind of guy Peter is. He just doesn't get it the first time. He needed it three times. And it also was helpful to know that on three times of a vision, three servants come. And so it's just helpful in that sense as well. But it's, it's rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, whoa, Holy Spirit, because it's the Spirit who's telling him this in, the, in a vision. He says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God's telling him uh, what is been declared un, now clean, no longer call it unclean. Three times that happened. Oh, you want me now to go to a Gentile named Cornelius, who's of the Italian cohort, and he wants to see me. I can't go to his house because he's a Gentile. That'll make me unclean. Oh, wait. Oh. So now chapter 10 and 11 are all about that. Chapter 10 is when it actually happens. And it is so important in the flowing out of the outflow of the narrative of what's going on in Acts. It's so important that the whole story gets told over again in chapter 11 when Peter has to come back to Jerusalem and everybody's questioning him about, hey, why did you go hang out with a Gentile? The whole story gets told again. Why would it get repeated? Because for them in their day, it was huge for a Jew to leave and go to where a Gentile was actually going to his house and tell him about Messiah Jesus. Even for the Christians, that was huge. It was huge for Peter. He didn't get it. Okay, that's chapters 10 and 11. Now skip chapter 12 for a moment. Chapter 12, just skip that for a moment. What happens in chapter 13? Paul takes the gospel to the Gentile world. So Peter was the one who went to one Gentile's house and Jerusalem, the Christians there, flipped out. And he had to help them think through that. Chapter 13 is Paul now leaving and you have his first of three missionary journeys and all he's doing is going into the Gentile world. Okay, Peter going to Gentiles, trying to help the church figure that out. Paul going to the Gentile world. What happens in chapter 12? Why is chapter 12 there? And what is going on in chapter 12? Here's what's going on in chapter 12. King Herod puts James, the brother of John, to death with a sword, beheads him, throws Peter in jail, and plans the next day to bring him out and do the same. But an angel comes and opens up the, you know, chains fall off Peter, opens the door, he walks out, thinks he's having a dream again. Peter doesn't know when he's dreaming and when he's not supposed to have a dream. He walks out and he goes back to the house where all the disciples are praying and Rhoda, the servant girl, sees him and she doesn't even let him in. She just sees him out there, runs in, tells everybody. And what have they been praying for? Dear Lord, please release Peter. She runs in, he's released. And they all say, you're nuts. We don't even believe what we're praying for. Um, and, and so then later the, the, the chapter ends with King Herod 
going up and visiting up in the north. Um, and he's all dressed in royal robes and the sun is glittering off him. It tells us in the historian Josephus and the people are looking down on him in, in the chapter it says in, in chapter 12 that the people say out loud, ah, oh, the voice of a God and not a man. And then he gets worms and he dies. A king, a Gentile king. Why would that be in the middle of those two things? A Gentile king who killed one of the apostles, took his head off and was going to do it to the other one. Why is chapter 12 in the middle of Peter going to the Gentiles Paul going to the Gentiles, and here's a Gentile king trying to kill these guys. You can't stop the gospel. Gentiles, the, the advancement of the gospel does not depend upon Gentile kings letting it do so. And so you need to be, now that's kind of at a macro level, you're trying to look back at why is a chapter where it is. Um, but you should be asking yourself that about why is that sentence where it is right now. Those are kinds of things you want to be thinking about that you might not even ask yourself if you don't have a list of good questions to think through, okay? And then at the end, the, the last little section there, you're, you're just wanting to kind of bring yourself back to, okay, I'm a worshiper. As I'm asking myself all of these questions about the text, I just want to remind myself I'm a worshiper. What kind of person I am right now with my Bible open matters. I'm a worshiper. Okay, now, I want to bring you back to uh, what I talked about at the beginning of this point. There are different kinds of ways of reading. One is pushing yourself way back and trying to read a lot to get the big picture. And the other one is to zoom in and go really slowly. And what you need to understand is that you are inclined towards one of those more than the other as a person. And you need to know what kind of reader you are. Okay. Now let me give you an illustration. Let's say you find out that you have inherited a 10,000 acre ranch in Montana. And you've never seen it. And you're going to go up there to find out what you've inherited. How would you look at the land to get a sense of it? Well, one way is you could get in a small plane and you could take off and you could fly above the whole thing. And you could look down and say, oh, my goodness, look how that that valley comes down into a, a river. And there's a wooded area down there. And the next thing you know, you've flown so fast, it's past. I'm like, oh, oh, but then look, there's like a little outcropping of rocks over here and and you would just be flying over it so fast from one side to the other just trying to get a, a, a feel for the big picture of it. that'd be one way to look at the land another way to look at the land was to be you could actually land the plane get out and you could walk through that little valley and you could get down to the where the river is and you could go and you could look at the trees one by one and you could get a sense for the land at that point now let me ask you this important question which one of those two ways is the right way to look at the land yeah. See, it, that's not even the right way to think about it. Why would you pit those two things against each other? They're both helpful. Do both of them. Okay, so some of us are, we read our Bibles and we, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, wait a minute, the beginning of what? The beginning. And what is he talking about? And we have heard, who are the we? And what did they hear? I just got to think about that for a bit. I haven't even finished the period. I haven't gotten to the period of the end of the sentence. Some of us read that slow. And some of us are on the other side where I just, I could just keep turning the page. And I could just keep turning the page. I just could just keep reading forever. And so the person who likes to read so slow comes to Wellspring and Wellspring says, um, we would, we'd like to encourage you, if you haven't ever, to read through the Bible in a year. 
And that person just goes, <gasps> my conscience is assaulted because I just, I could never do that. And the other person who just loves to just read and just keeps turning the page and just keeps reading comes to Wellspring and, and somebody says, you know what, I think you might need to slow down a little bit. And that person's like, ah, you're assaulting my conscience, I, uh, the way that I read. Well, wait a minute. Um, which way is the right way to read the Bible? Don't pit them against each other. You need to know what kind of person you are. If you're the person that likes to sit down and read through the whole book at once, and kind of because you like the big picture type of thing, that's wonderful. Guess what you're probably going to need to do? Also, slow down. And on the other side, if you're the person who like, I mean, you're analyzing every word and you've turned it backwards, forwards, upside down, and you've rearranged the letters five times because you're trying to just get, make sure you're not missing anything, guess what you probably need to do? You need to back out a little bit and read a little bit more. And it's okay. Be what you are, but understand that there's more than one way to read your Bible, and you need both ways to read your Bible, okay? Um, so it's helpful to know what kind of person you are uh, and, and understand that if somebody exhorts you to do something else, don't assume automatically that the what you do is God's only way to do it. It might not be. There might be other ways. And don't put yourself in a binary option that you don't need to be in. Okay? Number five, when you read, understand the relationship between interpretation and application. This is really important. Um, there is a very important relationship between the interpretation of a text where you're trying to get the meaning that's in the words. There's a relationship between that and then how you should go live. Based on what that means, I must go, my life must change over here. There's a relationship between those two. They are like back-to-back -back runners on a relay, okay? Interpretation of a passage, it's running its first leg on the pages of the scripture through the words that are there, and it hands off to you the baton, interpretation does, and then an application makes you run through your life to change. When you, The second runner is not the first runner, and the first runner is not the second runner. They are necessary one hands off to the other but they both don't do the same thing and you can't call them the same thing okay very important to understand interpretation is not application application is not interpretation they both need each other greatly they both take their proper space and their role in their relationship but interpretation of a passage must be established first before you try to go and apply it okay let me give you an example. In your mind, to, to think of these two things, put interpretation on, in one yard and build a three-foot wall on, between that yard of interpretation and application so that you can be in an application and you can see over the three-foot wall and you can see meaning, or vice versa, you can be over on the meaning side, interpretation, you can see over the wall, but you can't be in both at the same time. Make yourself... Force yourself a little bit to, it's one or the other. I need to be dealing with one or the other at a time, okay? So just a simple three-foot wall. What is interpretation? Uh, write this word with interpretation. Meaning. Meaning. What it means. Interpretation is you trying to get at what it means. Don't put the word meaning over with application, okay? Because that's not the place to put it. Um, let me ask you, let me take you back to this illustration too. 
Um, remember the, the note on the counter, uh, the light is out in the hallway. Um, can you take care of that? Uh, you wrote that earlier in the day, put it on the counter, and your husband didn't see it for hours. But that message was sitting there. Did that, when, when does that note have meaning? No. It had meaning the minute you wrote it. And before he ever came in, it meant something. But that tells you how we use the word meaning. It's meaningful. I get what that means. Okay, I just used that word again. I can interpret that. I can understand that. Okay? But it had meaning the minute you wrote it. Meaning is rooted in the words of the author. Okay? Now, let me give you a really bad example, okay, of this. Uh, let, me, let me draw the implication here for you on this. When does this have meaning? Look what I'm holding. When does this have meaning? Before you ever came to it. What it means is independent of you. It's independent of you. It has meaning before you ever get there. If you were never born, it had meaning. It didn't become meaningful when you walked in the room and opened it. Okay? Um, just like your words have meaning before your husband or your roommate ever sees them. I, kept, I got up this morning and there was a, a three by five card on the mirror. Can you wake up Sydney at 6 a.m.? And I thought that had meaning before I ever saw it. I was sleeping all night and it had meaning. Um, so um, let me give you a bad example. John fifteen twelve. Jesus tells his disciples um, on his last night with them, he says, love one another. Love one another. A wife studying that might think in response, oh, now listen carefully, I'm going to use this word on purpose and it's bad. Okay? Listen carefully. A, a wife studying that might think in response, oh, that means I need to love my husband better. That means I need to love my husband better. But is that what Jesus really means? In John 15, 12, as he speaks to his 11 disciples, Peter or Judas is gone. Is that what he means? Or has the wife mixed together how she believes her life should change as a result of what that text means? You see, there's a difference, and you have to be really careful. Um, if that is the one intended meaning, are other women supposed to love her husband better too? Because if that's what it means, I need to love my husband better, well, then that doesn't mean that for everybody else, too. That they have to love her husband better. What is Jesus' truth intention? What does he intend with his truth to mean? So what that actually is, is just a, a careless use of the word means. And we do that a lot, um, unfortunately, when it would have, be, would have been better for her to say, uh, how this applies to me is I need to love my husband better. Okay. But misspeaking this way and using the word means that way, um, what that actually does, all you have to do is put a few people in a group together and you're studying John 15, 12, and a woman says, what that means is I need to love my husband better. And somebody else is going, that's not what I got when I read it. 
And so now the avalanche is let loose, and now the next person says, well, what it means to me is that I need to love my children better. And so now we're all talking like there's how many different meanings in the one text? As many as there are readers. But guess what? Meaning doesn't exist on the reader's side. It exists where the author is. You know this to be true. This is the way that we communicate. In your own words, you, you're the one who has meaning. Now, we might have a variation of, uh, of what meaning means. What we're talking about, it impacted me. It's meaningful. Well, what I want to do is I want to just get you to, to realize that there are ways that people say this and it's not helpful. There's only one meaning in a text. Jesus meant one thing when he was talking to his 11 disciples. Now, you might have an implication from that, that you're like, oh my goodness. And you're sitting there and you tell all of your dear friends, my life must change in this way based on that meaning. And then somebody else says, and you know what? My life must change in this different way than what you said. That's so interesting how the one meaning brought about more than one application. Is it possible for there to be one meaning, but a variety of implications and applications from that one meaning? Absolutely. Every single time. But multiple implications and ways that you think you should change and people think they should change does not mean that that's how many different meanings there are. There's only one meaning. Okay? And there's a difference between what it means, or interpretation, and application. And you just need to be careful what the word means because, let's, let's face it, evangelical Bible study this day in these days for the last 20, 30 years has been full of well, what it means to me is, oh yeah, but what it means to me is, and it, we're all talking about it, the passage means different things to different people, and it doesn't. It doesn't. Language doesn't work that way. It's applied in different ways, but there's only one meaning in the words. And think about it. That's just how you communicate. You don't communicate and want people to come up with three different meanings or two different meanings, but there's only one, Okay. So, let me give an example of how we might work on this. Um, turn to Romans chapter 12. Let me give you a specific example. Jamie, you said we, I can go till 11, right? Is that what you said? Okay. Just wanted to, it's 8.30, right? Okay. Romans 12, verse 1. We'll actually look at verse 2, but I'll read verse 1. Here's what you need to do. When you're, when you're reading your Bible or when you're studying, think two separate steps. Two separate steps. Interpretation. What does it mean? And then from there, go to the next step, which is application. How should my life change as a result? Two steps. <laughs> Look at Hebrew, or I'm sorry, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, Paul says, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship and do not let's this one right here and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, let me give you an example of what you might be able to do in step one, rewrite in your own words, what Paul said, but start every sentence with Paul said to the Romans, and then summarize it. Try to get at the meaning of what he said, but force yourself to write 
Paul said to the Romans. Because where is meaning rooted? In what Paul said to the Romans. And so you're trying to get to that first. Don't jump over that to something that you feel like needs to change. Something does need to change. when you re- If you read that and you don't feel anything, something's <laughs> wrong with you. But uh, get first to the meaning. Paul said to the Romans something like, you could say, um, uh, where's my, where do I have it at? Oh, Paul said to the Roman believers that they should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living that unbelievers do. Something like that. That gets after the meaning, okay? Now, second part. Um, what is making me slip into thinking patterns of the world? Oh, I binge watched Netflix last weekend to get that whole series. And man, I just noticed that I'm, I'm, I'm more, uh, I just feel worldly in the way that I'm thinking. And ah, wow, that was, I, I see what that means and how my life might change. Do you understand? There's, I, by the way, I didn't binge watch anything last year. It's just an example. But I have a family member here who can uh, uh, attest to that. Um, but imagine if, if, if somebody had read that and said, to me that means I shouldn't watch TV. In fact, this verse means that all TV is evil. And if you have a cable subscription, you're probably not a Christian. And that is what Paul said to the Romans, you know. Now, that's, that's ridiculous, but listen, that's not all that far off from what Christians do when their Bibles are open, okay? Um, so you want to think two separate steps. What does it mean Paul said to the Romans? Isaiah said to the Jews. Moses said to the Israelites in the wilderness and so forth. Two crisp, clear distinct steps, interpretations on that side, applications on this side. There's a three-foot wall between them. You can see the other side. No matter which side you're on, you can see it, but you can't do both at the same time. You have to work in the one to the other, okay? And you can't call the one the other. Does that make sense? One interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications. Just make sure first that you find the one meaning in the text, okay? And that takes discipline. All right, number six, linger longer for better life impact from the Bible. When you read, linger a little bit longer for a better life impact from the Bible. This expands on number five a little bit. Um, Serious readers and serious studiers of the Bible are really after something good. Um, They're looking for life change. They're looking for something life impacting. They're looking for that stimulation that's like, Oh, yes, that hit me right between the eyes. That's exactly what I need. People who are really serious about their Bibles, they want that. They want that. And that's good. That's good. Certainly, God intends his words to impact and stimulate our hearts and our minds as we walk through life's daily events. It's right to want that. Now, listen carefully. But how you get to that is everything. How you get to that is everything. How do you get to those necessary applications and implications for living is everything. We shouldn't get to those life-impacting encouragements and stimulations by doing violence to the meaning of God's text. And you need to have a category 
that people do this. And I'll be honest with you this morning in my years here, um, the group that probably is more at fault in this than the other is the women. The women want, and, and godly women, have their Bibles open and they want stimulation from it. It must impact my life. But sometimes they want that regardless of what the passage means. You need to have a category that that can actually happen. It does. Okay? It happens. Um, This is especially where we need self-control as we read and as we interpret Scripture with the hopes of finding a meaningful application. It's possible, ladies, to get into such a rush to experience a life-changing moment with the Bible. Um that we're reading, that we actually race through the holy words and phrases and clauses, hastily looking just for whatever feels good for the moment. It's possible to do that. And the problem is then we can arrive at this really feel-good kind of place in illegitimate ways with God's word. It's possible for hurried, desperate readers to walk away from their Bible reading, feeling really good about the life impact they just felt but God not be honored by the way that they did it. That's possible. It is. So what's the solution? Train yourself. Discipline yourself to desire first. I want first, above anything else, I want the true meaning of the text. I want that first. Listen, I did not just say, uh, stop wanting your life to be impacted by the Bible. I didn't say that. What did I say? Before you ever get to that, before you ever get this kind of tingly stimulation and, oh, that was just amazing. Before that, what? What should you want first? You need to get to the meaning of the text because these are the king's words. These are the king's words. And you need to get to the impact. You do. You need to get to it. But you can't do it and violate what the king said. Okay? Let me give an example. Um, and that takes that, what that means is you have to linger just a little bit longer in, in the text, right? Um, turn to, yes, I'm going to say it. Turn to Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah 29.11. You already know it. You already feel good, right? I mean, you already are stimulated. It's like, oh, yes, this is great. 29.11. There's a church by us that's called 2911. And by the way, I just want you to know, um, Jeremiah 2911 is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. It is, it is phenomenal because of what it really means, not because of how it feels when I read it. You got it? 2911? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. My goodness, I do not even have to linger there for that to feel good. I don't. It just naturally does that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is another one. That just feels good. That's what I want. I want to walk away into my day impacted like that, aware of those kinds of things. And I can do that and completely violate what is actually going on in the text. Do you understand? Okay. You would never want anybody to do that with your words. 
So let's just extend to God the same courtesy. Now, let's do something interesting. Let's actually read the context. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 29. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Oh. So this is actually a letter that Jeremiah writes to those who have been in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar's exile. Okay? And he's a prophet, and he's going to write to them what God says. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's, here's what they're supposed to do. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Okay, full stop. Why doesn't anybody get excited about that verse? Why is nobody going home and building houses and planting a garden? It's the same you in verse 11. So why, what made us be so selective like that? What made it, let's be honest, what made us be selective like that? How it feels. When I read it, how would you like somebody to do that with yours? To decide which ones they're going to listen to and which ones they won't based on how they feel. You see, it's easier than you think. Because you, would, you know how language works and you know how you don't want it to work. And all we need to do is extend to God the same courtesy. Does this make sense? Take wives and become the fathers of... Anybody doing this today? Um... Daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Listen, Yahweh is saying to his people who were so unfaithful and he said 70 years in Babylon, you're gone. And now he says to them, you cannot decrease there. You are my people and you must increase there. Just like I took care of my people in, in Egypt and then they were enslaved, I'm going to take care of you in exile. You must go there. Don't give up. Don't give up. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city. Wait a minute, there's the word welfare. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. The city must be a place of peace because I'm going to grow you there. I don't want it under turmoil, so don't be a part of problems and rebellion there. Be a part of the solution. You're my people. We need that welfare of that city because that's your welfare. Verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name and have not sent them. And you know what they were saying back in that time? They were saying, hey, listen, any moment now, you always bring this all back. We're all going to come back. And what Jeremiah had been told is going to be 70 years. And now he's telling them, don't listen to the false prophets. You're going to stay here. So build a house. Plant a garden, marry off your kids, seek the welfare of the city because you cannot decrease here. Because I have plans for you, Israel, in captivity. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare, not plans for calamity in Babylon, but to give you hope, to give you a future. 
That's an amazing verse. And that says a whole lot more about God than it says anything about me. And I love my God. And I prayed at the beginning of my time in the Word that I would be a humble, prayerful worshiper of God. And I just got a lot of fuel for worship of my God. And I may walk away thinking, listen, here's the danger. You walk away with verse 2911 disconnected from what it actually means. And you're thinking, my God is well for me today and no calamity. And how many times has calamity hit your life? And what does that make you question? Who does that make you question? God. And that's wrong. Because you didn't understand the text to begin with. Okay? Uh, linger a little bit longer to get the, the zinger you want. You've you got to be impacted by the text. You have to be. But what if the whole point of a Christian today reading 2911 in its context, what if the whole point is just that you would stop, forget about yourself, and just marvel at your God who was so merciful to a rebellious people who didn't deserve it? What if that was the point of 2911? You see, 2911, don't, don't let any Christian that you hear speak of 2911 like it is, it, it's just, that's just so dumb. No, what Christians do with it sometimes is dumb, but it is an amazing verse. It's just like any other verse in the Bible, but you've got to get after it the right way. Linger a little bit longer to get the life impact that you're supposed to. And you know what's on the inside of every um, uh, Christian high school's gym in the locker room before you come out above the door? What does it, what's, what's it say above the door? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so I love it when two Christian schools are playing against each other because both of them believe that about God for them against the other. And God is now going to be, everybody feels good going out. They slam it on the wall. Oh, yeah, God's for us and not them. And they just ran out on the court saying the same thing the other way. Listen, you, what is Paul talking about in Philippians 4.13? Um, I'm in prison. Um, I just received from you, Philippians, the gift that you brought to me. And I've been in want. I've been in lack. I, but you know what? Um, I've learned how to get along with what I, when I don't have and when I do have. And you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can get through any kind of a circumstance and be content. That's what it means. And that doesn't make it now be like less, eh, it doesn't feel as good. No, it feels better, right? Because it's tied to the meaning. Two separate steps, meaning first, then implication, application. How is this going to change my life? You've got to get to that. You just have to get there the right way, right? Because you would want people to do that with your words. It's easier than you think. It's more serious than you think. Let, let me ask you this. If you read any history, let's say you're reading uh, World War II, the invasion of Normandy. It is the only way that that takes on any kind of a... Man, that just impacted me. Is the only way that it takes on impact is if you write yourself into the story. You're on the beach in Normandy and the bomb blew off right next to you. Is that the only way that it takes on a meaningfulness to you? Is if you write yourself in the story? You don't do this with any other text. But Christians do this with God's word, that all of a sudden the you in 2911 is me. And it takes on all of its amazingness when I write myself into it. Don't do that. You don't need to do that to get to the impact. There's a better impact to get to if you linger just a little bit longer. And you talk about self-control. It takes self-control to do this. Um, so you got to take your time. Okay. 
Your life has to change. Your life must be influenced by God's word, but that must happen the right way with an honorable use of God's words. You'll be far more satisfied by the legitimate application that arises from the proper interpretation. And you know what? God will be glorified by your careful reading of his word. Number seven, give grammar and syntax more weight in interpretational decisions. So you want to, make, you want to decide what this passage means you're going to need to probably at some point maybe stretch yourself just a little bit on grammar. Uh, and listen, w- w- this is horrible. We live in a, a postmodern world that has thrown language out the window and nobody wants to teach grammar anymore. Um, when I was a school teacher back in the early 90s in Southern California, California had this bright idea that the way that they were going to teach kids grammar was not by actually using a grammar book and saying this is a noun. And this is a verb. And here's subject verb agreement. And here's a prepositional phrase. They weren't going to do that anymore. They were just going to teach them grammar by reading. They're just going to read it and they're just going to pick it up and they're going to understand this stuff. And and what they found out is like every other trend in education, that one came and that one went. And it didn't do what it needed to. And in fact, it impoverished the readers. And so what they were doing at this junior high that I was teaching at, and I was teaching earth science and math, um, but I was getting ready to go to seminary and I knew that I was going to have to be dealing with some other languages and they were throwing away all of their grammar books for the ninth graders. You know, those little, remember the little grammar, they're like that big, and they're like that thick, and they were throwing away like five different versions of them. I just dove on the pile and grabbed them and brought them home. And that summer before I went to seminary, I read through every single one, and I retaught myself to diagram, and I taught myself how to recognize these things because the first thing I had to do to get into seminary was take an an English proficiency exam and I needed to know English well because I'm going to learn Greek and I'm going to learn Hebrew and I want to be able to rightly understand language now you don't need to go dive on a grammar pile of books somewhere and do that but you need to uh, probably get a little bit more familiar at, at places where you can how you can and let me tell you this if you never read a grammar book you're gonna be okay you're going to be okay. You are. Because language does have an intuitiveness to it. Uh, you don't say stuff like, hey, where was you? Because you, the, you, you may not know why that's not right, but you just know that's not right. <laughs> right? Uh, so you're, you're better off than you know. But if you can and you want to, um, there's some things you can stretch yourself with a little bit. Let me give you an example a um, meaning in this is um, until you understand grammar and syntax. What syntax means is how the words and the phrases are all connected to each other. That's actually important. Um, where you put a modifier in a sentence depends on what you're trying to describe. Am I trying to describe the, the, the author or am I trying to describe the action or am I trying to describe the object that's getting the action done to it? Where I put that is everything. So how they're related and where they're put together. And meaning is primarily... In language, meaning is primarily at the sentence level, okay, or at a clause level, whether it's a main clause or a subordinate clause. But meaning is primarily at the sentence level, not at the word level. An individual word has meaning. It does. So hear me rightly. I'm not saying words don't have meaning. They do. But your meaning when you communicate exists primarily at the sentence level. Let me give you a silly example. Um, I see people here my age and, and maybe even a little older. Do you remember the, the old uh, game show on TV called Password? Okay. Uh, you're, you have uh, two people on a team, and there's a word on the card, and the person who has the card doesn't say the name or the, the word that's on the card, but they're trying to get their partner to say the word, right? 
And so, but they can only do it with one word at a time. You can only say one word to your partner at a time, and you're trying to get them to say this word. So I'm going to do that with you, okay? <laughs> right. I have a word on my card. You don't know what it is, but I'm going to try to get you to say it, okay? First word. Annoying. Irritating. Annoying. Okay. Second word. Noisy. No. <laughs> Annoying. <laughs> Noisy. Three. Third word. Sleeping. Sleeping. Snoring. Fourth word. Breathing. Snoring, right? I mean, you, you see how it gets there? Listen, we don't communicate that way. We don't, when we want to communicate what's in our minds, we don't think of um, noisy. Um, annoying. <laughs> what, what, I'm, what, I'm, what that illustrates is that those words have meaning, but that's not how we communicate what we mean. We take those words and we connect them together in a sentence, and now all of a sudden it's like something that's really annoying is noisy breathing when you're sleeping. It's called snoring. You, you string it together. So words are important. But words do not, are not the primary vehicle by which meaning is communicated. It's at the sentence level. Okay, that's very important for you to understand. So um, you can stretch yourself a little bit. And again, if you don't ever read a grammar book and try to figure out what a sentence or a clause is, you're going to be okay because you've already gotten through most of life or a good part of life now without it, and you're, you're going to be okay. All right. But some of you need to, if you're inclined that way, some of you need to do it because you can be a help to the rest of us. Okay. Number nine, be careful with the words meaning. Be careful with the words meaning. This builds off of that last one. Um, and uh, by the way, there's, there's 10 of these in the list. Um, and notice that this one is number eight on the how to read your Bible carefully and how to study. It's number eight. It's not number one. Because a lot of times what people do when they think they're going to study the Bible is they go to um, their, their passage and they see uh, the word justification in the first verse and they get their Bible dictionary out or they, get a, 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 they open up their laptop and they get on Bible Gateway or whatever, Blue Letter Bible, and they start looking up important words one at a time. And that's like the first thing they're doing. And they're, and they're convinced, I'm studying the Bible. Well, just remember that that's right. You do need to do that. That's important. But that's not the primary way we communicate, and so I need to know what those words mean, but I need to make sure that I'm understanding how they all fit together. So be careful with the words meaning also. For instance, let me give you something silly. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11.25, and what I'm going to illustrate with this is what you think a word means and what your culture thinks a word means, you need to be really careful when you see a word on the page and your associations with what a word means. Okay? 2 Corinthians 11.25, Paul says at one point in there, he says, once I was stoned. <laughs> I'm, telling you, I'm telling you something. I, this is not a joke. If you take anybody like this generation right over here, these little millennials over here, <laughs> and you drop them into 2 Corinthians 11, and they read that, and he says, once I was stoned... I'm telling you, you're going to have to explain to them. Uh, another one, this is about spoken word and how the spoken word is not as helpful as the written word. I was sitting with a guy one time um, sharing the gospel with him, 
And I was sitting in a Starbucks. He had never gone to church, never read the Bible. And I was talking to him about Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, where Jesus says, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle. And as I'm telling him this, and, and as I'm telling this to a guy who lives in a city, I'm realizing, take my yoke upon you. He, he, he probably, I'm not going to assume he even knows. And so I didn't have the Bible open to that. And I said, you know what a yoke is, right? And he goes, oh, yeah, it's that part of the egg. Yeah. No. yeah. Yes, but no. Um, people will do this. Think about this. Uh, the Olympics have been going on, and figure skating is going on, and uh, the way that our culture and our language views beauty, we can use the word grace in ways as, as people in our day that it's like, uh, it's very appropriate that she skates with such grace. And then you tell them at some point that if for by grace you have been saved through faith. They're not going to understand what you mean when you say that. Oh, you mean it was like an elegant way that I was saved? No, I don't mean that. I mean, there was no merit at all. So you have to be careful about what a word means, and you have to be careful uh, to keep the words connected together, but you have to be careful also that you're not taking your word in your day and imposing it onto the page of Scripture because you would never want anybody to do that with your words. You wouldn't want your child or your spouse to put insert their meaning for a word that you used without verifying first that's what you meant with that word right the author is the one who gets to determine what the word means so this is easier than you think um so um number nine number nine compare contrast your passage with other passages um have you ever done this You've been in a, in a in a text and you're reading and you're like, um, and and somebody asks you, hey, what does verse three mean? And you're like, oh yeah yeah yeah, let me show you what that means. Turn over to um, turn over to. Uh, have you ever done seen that happen? Or you maybe you've even done it yourself. Oh, I know what that means. It means let me let me turn the page, right? Um, now, what is good about that, and what might be dangerous about that? Let's, let's think about in, in your own conversations that you have with your child on one day. Um, and you just made a declaration to them on what, in the context of what's happening right there. Have you ever had them say, but yesterday you said. So you see, it's easier than you think. But we just have to be aware of how language works. So don't turn the page. Don't compare what another passage says with that passage yet right away. You should at some point turn your page and look at another passage to figure out what's going on. But you need to be careful with that. And then you also have to be thoughtful about this. Not every passage means the exact same thing. So you might be trying to figure out what this passage means here because you don't understand it, but you know that there's something similar that Jesus said over here. And so you turn over to that one. And what you have to be careful with is to not say, I know what this passage means because this passage says this, and I therefore just made that passage able to fit right in with that. You have to be careful with that because that might be the case. It might be the case. It might not be the case. Let me ask you this. Let me give you a, kind of a silly um, a couple of illustrations. For there to be unity and harmony in a human body, oneness and flowing and purpose and um, 
so the body's not fighting against itself. Does everything on the body need to be an eye or a hand? No, you can actually have very different body parts, but there's unity and it makes sense. The hand is not the eye, and the eye is not the ear. And the eye doesn't have to be the ear for it to all be in harmony and make sense together. Guess what? In your Bible, you need some passages to be very different from one another to get the harmony that's going on. See that wall over there? See all those blocks, those cinder blocks? Okay. We would call, we know what to call this whole thing. It's, it's, it's a wall, right? But what is, what is this right here? No, it's a wall. This, this right here is a wall. Because that's the only way this whole thing can be a wall is if every single one of these blocks is the exact same thing as a wall, right? No, we don't, we don't think that way. We have a category that this brick does or block does what it does. And when you put them all together, it makes something unified and whole. So when you go to your Bible, you want to make sure that when you're in one passage, think of it like a block. And then there's going to be another block next to it. And those two blocks might not be saying the same thing, and they don't have to say the same message to make the whole thing coherent. Okay? So compare and contrast your passages, but just be careful as you do it. You don't need, for instance, what James says about justification be equal to what Paul says about justification in chapters 3 and 4 of Romans. Because that word can be used in different ways at different times. And so you don't want to just force... If, if James says you have to be justified by works and not just by faith, and Paul's saying you're only justified by faith apart from works, you don't look at that and go, uh-oh, we got a real problem here. Um, you, you need to be able to compare them and contrast them and understand what's going on. So first, get the meaning in each of the passages, and then think about what are the implications from that theologically, and how do I hold those two things together? I don't demand everything on a body to be a hand. Maybe one of them is an eye and the other one's a hand, and they both need to be together in some way to make the whole work together. Okay? So compare and contrast your passage with other passages. And lastly, we're almost done. Um, and notice where that takes place, too, in the list. Not number one, not number two, but what? Number nine. You do that towards the end. In other words, just stay in your passage. Put that choke collar on, and then take a hammer and nail your your Bible so you can't turn the pages. Just stay on that page and just stay right there for as long as you possibly can because you need to know what those words mean before you turn to any other page and figure out what the other words mean. Okay? Lastly, pray again. Pray again. At the end of your reading, prayerfully contemplate what you've just read. What did you learn about the meaning of the passage you read? Uh, learn to... Ladies, can I just encourage you to, to, to insert this somewhere in the, in the middle of all your prayerful Bible reading? Learn to just praise God that you understand his meaning in a text. You were at one point hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. You, you had a, a, a twisted, corrupt mind that rejected God. And now you have this ability by God's grace to renew your mind and to have a mind that is, can, be, can be set upon the things above, and the fact that you actually understand what God is saying in his Bible should make you just go, er, 
I'm going to pull the emergency brake. I'm just going to stop this thing, and I am just going to praise you. I understand. I don't understand everything, and I'm sure I don't understand it to the depth that I need to, but I get it, and that's amazing. Not because of me, but because of what you've done to me that I can understand this now. Um, so just pause. When, when God reveals his thoughts to us through his words, we, uh, should we not pause and simply rejoice and worship that we understood what he wrote? Um, the goal here is not for you to feel less life impact. Okay, that's not the goal. But you need to worship at the meaning level. On this side over here, um, you remember the, the two yards and the, the, the wall? The meaning side is not dry and boring, and it's just something I have to tolerate to get through so that I can get over to where I really feel better in the application. That's wrong thinking. Learn, discipline yourself over here when you get the meaning to worship. I understand him. I know him. I get what he's saying. Um, it doesn't need to be all about how you feel. It just needs to be about you honoring God and worshiping him regardless of how you feel. I understand what you said there. Okay? So let there be worship over on that side. What did you learn about God and his character? What is he like? What is he not like? Prayerfully worship him for just simply revealing himself to you. He, God, you did this. I, you didn't have to reveal yourself. You did. You're amazing. You have any, if you walked away from that and you hadn't really thought about how your life needs to change in other areas, that'd be okay. You need more, but that'd be okay. But that's not where many Christians are at. Most Christians kind of just run past that boring, dry interpretational, hermeneutical, grammatical, historical interpretation stuff. I just want to feel something. It's called narcissism. It's called narcissism. And we just don't want to be those kinds of Christians with the Bible open. Okay? So, all right, we are past time. I'll let you guys, you ladies, go. How about we pray, and then you guys can run off to your discussion group leaders and spend time together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, it, that's amazing. Um, we know that we did not deserve it. Um, we did not deserve you to reveal yourself to us, that you are a God of great might and power that you are a God of holiness and righteousness and justice. Lord, we did not deserve to know that you are a God of mercy and grace and kindness to us in Jesus. And we did not deserve to know what it's like to have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, Lord. We, none of that was we merited from you, that, that we obligated you somehow to reveal that to us. You just simply wanted to be known. And you work in rebels in such a way that you raise them up to newness of life, cause them to be born again. You give them new minds that want to know you. Lord, that's where we find ourselves this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be um, careful with your word, that we would understand um, how serious it is. But Lord, I pray also for my friends here that they would see um, that it's not as hard as they think because they understand how language works and you use language and communication and words to describe yourself. So, Father, we commit ourselves into your hands and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.